This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Haggai chapter 1. This is found on page 791 in the Bibles in the back of your pew. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Zodak, the high priest. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes on it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, Joshua, son of Zodak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the message of their prophet Haggai, because the Lord, their God, had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Zodak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came together and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Ron. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, before I dive into our text this morning, I want to just give a brief overview of where we're at in the pulpit and what's coming in the next couple of weeks. Uh, last week and this week, we're taking a pause from our time in Sermon on the Mount and drilling into Haggai chapter one, this, this uh, statement to consider your ways as we look at coming into a new year together as a spiritual family, uh, just some things that were stirring in my heart as it related to taking a season to intentionally press into God's heart for our lives and for our family and uh, to reorder and reorient our pursuits around the things that God has called us to. And so uh, this morning I'm preaching in some ways a part two of last week's message. If you weren't here, you could go back and find that. 
Uh, I'll do plenty of review for you, so you'll, you'll be right with us. But, um, and then next week, we'll jump back into the Sermon on the Mount and finish it over the course of January. And then I want to give a, just a, a, a sneak peek of where we're going to be at uh, from February to Easter. Um, it's been on my heart for some time to look at Jesus Christ. Uh, we've, we've spent a lot of time as a church family uh, in really specific ways and for, um, I think, reasons that are really close to God's heart. Since last Easter, we've been almost exclusively in teachings of Jesus. We looked at the Upper Room Discourse at the end of uh, the Gospel of John. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been focused on Jesus's commandments and uh, following them and what obedience looks like. And my heart coming into this spring was, let's take some time together and just look at Jesus and look at the one who's worth giving all of our life for, the one who's worth uh, ordering all of our affections and our energy and our pursuits and our time around. I've been stirring around in my soul. Paul says this phrase in Ephesians chapter three when he's talking about his ministry. He says, God gave him the grace and the, the charge to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. And I want us to drill into some of those riches, to ask the question, what are the riches of Jesus in his humanity, in his divinity, in his humility, in his goodness, his beauty, his kindness, all of these things, and to look at him and ask God by his grace to stir our affections for him together as a people. So that's what's on the horizon for us. But I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll uh, jump into this uh, part two this morning. So Father, we love you. We adore you. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that we have access to your presence because of your son, Jesus. We thank you that in him and in him alone, we have the ability to stand before you fully accepted and fully loved. God, so I ask that this morning, as those who are called by your name, would you come to us by your spirit and fill us afresh with vision of what life in you looks like? God, would you remind us of who we are? Would you awaken and fan into flame first love in this spiritual family? I ask in all the places where it's so easy to just drift and become dulled and apathetic and we just take on things in our lives that distort and disorient our pursuit of your presence and your person. God, I ask that you would come this morning and by your grace, would you confront us? Would you convict us? Would you realign us? And would you stir up in us by your spirit love for you? passion for your name. God, I ask that you would give us a, a clear and whole ambition to pursue you and to know you and to love you and to lay all of our lives down before you. God, would you be so kind to us this morning to do that work by your spirit? And I ask that we would see the fruits of what we even heard read in this passage at the end, where all of this is undergirded by, we heard, that you stirred the spirit of the people. 
God, would you stir us up? I ask for a stirring of the waters of our hearts in places where we're complacent, in places where we're lethargic, in places where we, we lack vision or are drawn back. I ask that you would stir us up afresh. Give us the fear of the Lord afresh. We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. So let's just jump right in. This is a bit of review from last week, so if you weren't here, I'm sorry, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll try to catch you up as fast as possible. Uh, letter A, as we're entering into a new year together as a spiritual family, I want us to focus a specific season and intentionally look at our lives, our pursuits, our focus, our passions, and to ask God to realign all of our lives around what his desire and his vision is for us, both personally, individually, and as a spiritual family, right? So every person and every corporate body of believers is called primarily to two big headers, right? We're called to the great commandment, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means give every part of your life as an offering to him in response for the grace that he has given us and lavished on us in Christ Jesus. We're called to love him with all of who we are. That's the first and great commandment. But we're also called to walk out the great commission, which is go and make disciples and give witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the places where he's put us and to teach others to walk in his ways and to know him and pursue him and love him, right? So we're all given those two broad headers of assignments, but each person and each spiritual family is given particular and specific ways that that assignment looks in a season, right? You know, in your life and in where you find yourself, your expression of that is unique and uh, timely related to where God has you, the circumstances of your life, what he's called you to, the vocation he's given you, all of these things. And so it's important for us at times to take seasons of reflection and look at or consider our lives and what we're giving ourselves to? Where are our passions oriented? Where is our time going? Where's our money going? All of those realities, we take and we look at them and ask God to bring them up under his vision and his desire for us. The new year, letter B, affords us with a lot of latent energy toward this, right? We all made new year's resolutions and we've all probably broken them already. And if you haven't, like Ricky said at 101, you can come break your uh, health one that you're not gonna eat any sugar with the donuts. However, much of this energy is primarily oriented towards our physical health, our personal fulfillment, or our own ideas of success, right? We find a lot of energy towards this momentum to make new resolutions, right? We, we wanna be better than we were before. We have this energy to look at our lives and, and bring them up or under uh, uh, right practices or discipline or things like that. We, we see that, right? We feel the effects of six weeks of just loose living as it relates to eating between Thanksgiving and Christmas, 
right? Like no other time in the world is it okay for me to eat seven cookies and six glasses of eggnog. But for some reason, there's like an amnesty or a banner of grace in my thoughts, right? So I come to New Year's and I go, okay, I can't live that way anymore. However, spiritually, we have to take seasons to look at our spiritual lives like that, right? Like there's things that we find ourselves doing or pursuits that we orient our lives toward, that there's times where we need to refocus and intentionally ask the Lord, what have you called me to? Am I stepping toward that? How are my, how's my spiritual health? Not just my physical health. How's my soul? Is it languishing? Is it uh, dulled? Is it unhealthy? How are my relationships, my family, my marriage, my friendships, how am I expressing your heart, God, in the midst of those? How are, my, how are my finances? How is my vocation? Did I just say yes to the next promotion and the next promotion and the next promotion? And I never asked you what you have for me. And now my life is spread thin and I don't have any time or energy to give to the things that you called me to. We need to ask those questions. And I want to use the momentum of a new year and say, hey, family, can we look at our ways together? Can we consider our ways and ask God to highlight the areas in our lives where we've gotten off track? Ask him to reestablish us in the things that matter and the things that are important to our lives in him. So let's look at the context of Haggai's ministry. This is very similar to what the word comes to the prophet Haggai saying. And I just flew over this last week, but I think there could be a timely word for us here. There's a lot of corollaries. Uh, One thing that I've been thinking about this week a lot is the, the people that God sends Haggai to. One of the remarkable differences of so many other prophetic ministries from the Old Testament is these people are not brazenly sinning, right? They're not running into idolatry like so many people before, right? So many of the prophets are, hey, you have left God and you are running in a path of perversion and sin and darkness and you have forsaken him and you are turned away from him. You are harlots and you're practicing idolatry. Turn back to God. That's not what the message is here. The message isn't you are practicing these sinful things and you need a a jarring reawakening to who God is and you need to come back to him. It's slowly over time, you got consumed with things that were disordered. And I want you to look at them And remember what I've called you to. Remember the things that I've put in front of you. So letter A, the prophecy of Haggai is given in the broader context of Israel's return from the exile and their efforts to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple. So if you don't know what the exile is, uh, in, in 606 BC, this is a pretty important part of Old Testament history. King Nebuchadnezzar, he was a Babylonian king, 
he began to lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. And over the course of 20 years or so, he, he had several waves where he would come and lay siege to Jerusalem. He would uh, break into it and then take captives from Israel to Babylon into captivity. They, they would do this time and time again over several waves. 20 years go by, and he's done this a few times. And in 586 BC, the city of Jerusalem, he, he plunders it, he destroys it, he burns the walls, and he up, upends the temple, like he destroys the temple of God and takes the remaining people into exile. Now, the exile is this uh, direct chastisement that the Lord uh, used against his people for their continued rebellion and sin. You can go read about that in Second Chronicles 36 if you desire to. So after 70 years of the people of God being removed from their promised land, living in Babylon, living in captivity, in 70 years time, uh, a first wave of Israelites begin to come back to Jerusalem with the intention to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. So about 50,000 of them make the trek across the desert. You know, it's like a 700-mile journey uh, from Babylon, which would be like modern-day Iraq, back to Israel to inhabit Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, right? They get back. This is, you see that in Ezra 1 and 2? Look at, look at letter F. They get back. They, they make this big trek back with this stated purpose our desire is to rebuild God's city and rebuild God's temple. And they get to work. They get after it. They lay the foundations. They're, you know, digging the foundation hole, putting the stones in. They're building it. And in the course of a year, they lay the entire foundation of the temple. And they, they get all of this work done in the, in the course of about a year. A year. Although they began with zeal to rebuild God's house and the city, they were almost immediately met with discouragement and disappointment and stopped. And I'm going to highlight this a little bit later, but I want to name three things that they experienced that I think we often experience as well that tempt us to draw back and take the path of lesser resistance or least resistance. Number one, they found out really quickly that the work was way harder than they thought it was going to be. It was way harder than they thought it was going to be. The work in front of them was just difficult. It was exhausting. It was grueling. It took a lot, a lot of time, energy, labor. It, would, it was so much easier to remove themselves from it and take the path of lesser resistance. Right? So they, the work was really hard. That's number one. Number two, they're kind of opposed everywhere. They've got external problems, people coming in and causing all sorts of havoc. Internally, their strife kind of sounds like normal life, right? Like things are breaking, things are going wrong outside, their cars are breaking down, they're having to like change insurance plans, all these kind of things and then it's hard, people are opposing them, they've got like relational conflict inside, all these things are going on. Thirdly, their expectation 
of what they hoped it would be did not meet the reality of what it was. And this is what we see in Ezra chapter three when the people who were there at the, when the previous temple existed, they would have been kids, right? They're in their 70s now. But people that had seen the former temple, they wail because this is nothing like what they remembered. The glory of what they remembered, how beautiful it was, how magnificent it was. It was small and rough and grimy and difficult. And they're wailing because the reality of what they were putting their hands to did not match the grandeur of their ideals or what they longed for. So after this initial burst of work, the foundations of the temple, they go untouched for 16 years. 16 years. Think about that. Some of you can't remember 16 years ago. You were like five. 16 years. They, it just lays there. They get caught up. They get busy. They get reordered around other things. 16 years go by and God in his kindness at this point sends a prophet to come into their midst and remind them, say, hey, hey guys, I sent you here for a reason. Would you stop and look at what you're doing and realign your life back to what I've called you to, what I've purposed for you. Look at the top of page two. So understanding the context of Haggai's ministry ultimately helps us to understand the nature of this first prophetic message given by God to his people. So over time, God's people had abandoned the pursuit of building his house. This was their particular assignment at the time. And they focused on building their own houses, right? God had given them a task, an assignment, a calling, a vocation, something to be about. And because of those difficulties that surrounded them, they drew back and began to pursue other things. Now, one of the realities of human life is our own propensity to get off course in small and imperceptible ways, right? It doesn't happen oftentimes in this big rash, like I'm out, right? Or I'm gonna, I'm gonna look at the thing that God's called me to, or I'm gonna look at a life that's pursuing wholehearted obedience to Jesus or wholehearted uh, zealous pursuit of his face and his presence and his glory and his goodness. And I'm gonna push that aside and run headlong in a different direction. Most of the time, it happens in really small, imperceptible ways. There's a, if you're right now, I don't, I don't know why I'm thinking about this. If you're thinking in this moment, like, oh, but that's way back when, that's like Old Testament, they're, they're building the te temple, all these kind of things, like this is different. This, let, let's talk about the grace of God and all these kind of things. This happens in the New Testament church too. Um, Go read Jesus's rebuke of the Ephesian church in Revelation chapter two, verses one to seven. The Ephesian church was a revival center in the days of Paul. 
right? So much so that people were running out and burning magic books and other kinds of pursuits where they were worshiping other gods. They came so much so that it disrupted the economic system of Ephesus and people were calling them like the, the people that were overturning the Roman Empire, over, overturning the known world. That they saw so much fruit from there. It became this mission sending center. There was revival and God worked in powerful ways. 30 years go by, Jesus shows up through the apostle John and he says, tell the Ephesian church this, they're doing all the right things. I know their works, I know their deeds, they've got good doctrine, their doctrinal statement is awesome. I have one thing against them. They left their love. They lost their first love. They don't pursue me anymore. They do all these things externally. They're still doing all the right works. They're still believing all the right things, but inside their heart is dead and they're hollow and they don't run hard after me. Tell them to repent and turn back to me. Come back and pursue the things that you did at first. So this has as much application to New Testament born-again believers as it does to the people of Haggai's day. Okay, end bunny trail. So this happens to us. There are many places in our lives where we make small and seemingly insignificant choices to respond to a circumstance that's in front of us or a series of circumstances. And before we know it, We've walked through chunks of our life, decades, 16 years, without truly pursuing the things that we're called by God to pursue. Look at letter D. It takes grace-sustained endurance. This is what the Bible, the New Testament, calls patience. Anytime you read the word patience in the New Testament, it's not talking about your ability to stay chill when someone's bugging you. That's not what patience is. Patience in the Bible has to do with not giving up when you're waiting, not checking out, not giving in, not drawing back. Patience has to do with stepping towards the promises of God, walking out your life in obedience, even when you don't see how in the world it's going to happen the way that God has promised. And everything around you tells you, hey, just give up. It's not gonna happen. Don't uh, keep pressing on that way. To step forward, partnered with the grace of God in obedience, in pursuing God in the face of that, that's what the Bible calls patience. So when Paul outlines the fruit of the Spirit and he says, love, joy, peace, patience, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about not giving up when things are harder, less amazing, and opposed, right? That's what he's saying. And this is grace-empowered spirit wrought in us. It takes grace-sustained endurance to remain connected to God's purposes throughout the seasons of our lives. There are many obstacles that we face in fulfilling the work that God has put in front of us. 
Look at these. I'm just going to drill into them for a second. Number one, like I've said, the work is difficult. Oftentimes we don't rightly orient our expectations to the reality of the work in front of us. Many times the things that God calls us to are more difficult than we imagine. I don't know if I'm the only one who thinks this, but we could be tempted to believe that because God called us to do it, it'd just be easy, right? It's like, God told me to do it. I showed up and it was like, whoo, that was the easiest thing I've ever done. That's wrong. That's just flat out wrong. That's not biblical. It's not how God leads. It's not how God works. It's not how God works in this world through his people. God does not promise that obedience to him will be easy. He promises that he'll be with us. He promises that he'll give us grace to take the next step toward him. He promises that he will be there to pick us up and to catch us when we stumble. He promises to pour out mercy upon us, not because of what we've done in Christ Jesus. He promises all those things. He does not promise that it will be easy. Actually, you could make a pretty good case of exactly the opposite. Right? We're going to look in a couple weeks at the part of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, the way is narrow and difficult. Few find it. The easy way is broad and it's coated with all these amazing things. And a lot of people find that way. So the work is hard. We have to right size our expectation of what it will, what our experience will be like as we walk out obedience to God's word and what he's called us to, it's not going to be easy. It doesn't mean that it's going to be less difficult or less costly. That's number one. Number two, and all of these, when we experience them, tempt us to draw back, right? We don't like doing hard things. We don't like when things are opposed and we don't like when things don't match our expectations, when our reality doesn't. Number two, the work is opposed. Many times we face the reality that to walk consistently before God's eyes with purpose and focus over the long haul is not popular and it's costly. This will really cost. Jesus Jesus is not lying or he's not being... um, like using some rhetorical flourish when he says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. And when somebody finds it, they run and they sell everything to get it. That's actual cost. That's, that's not him just being poetic or putting on some flourish of, of rhetoric. He is naming reality. There are costs that come in walking this out. There are various forms of opposition we face through our lives, right? Internal, you get discouraged, you get despairing. Despair is the belief that nothing's ever going to change. It's the opposite of hope. Hope is the confidence that God will break in and do what he promised no matter what your senses are telling you. Despair is nothing's ever going to be different. This is the way it will always be, right? Internally, we're opposed when we're discouraged and we're despairing. 
There's external opposition, right? Relationships. It's difficult to walk out relationships at times when you want to pursue all that God has for you, right? When you have to say no to things or focus your life in particular ways, sometimes it's not as popular or it's costly, right? So we experience some external. There's circumstances that that happen. I I love, I don't love it. Love's not the right word. I find it instructive that God in this chapter tells the people, hey, I've actually kept you in this place of lack and dependence, right? You have this, this lie in you that if you just had a little more or that thing just settled down a little bit, then you would be about the work that God had you. And God says, no, 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 you're actually missing it totally. I'm the one that's putting the holes in the bag. You go and try to make money and you put it in the bag and it's like there's holes in it, right? You get to the end of the paycheck and it's like, wait, 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 wait. How did, how, how did we not have enough? God said, I'm doing that, right? The circumstances are tough and he actually orchestrates it that way sometimes to keep us dependent, Because he knows if we just got that next thing, like the next thing that you think, if that went, fell into place, then I will be. You get that, there will be another one. I promise. And God knows that too, right? So we experience all these opposition, right? And that tempts us to draw back. The third difficulty is the reality doesn't match our expectation, We often infuse grandiose ideas into what it means to walk in obedience and faithfulness to Jesus. Often the work is much smaller and seemingly way more insignificant than we expected. I don't, again, this is one of those like, I'll I'll, I'll do confessional time here. I thought I was gonna change the world for Jesus, right? 20 years old, big eyes, zealous heart. And God loved it, by the way. If that's you right now, if, if, uh, if you're 20 years old, 25 years old, and you think you're going to change the world for Jesus, and you've got big eyes and a big heart, let me breathe on that. Jesus loves it. Jesus does not despise that. Jesus doesn't pat you on the head and say, just wait till you get jaded. Get around people that fan that into flame. However, also get around people who will help you right-size the importance of life in its mundanity and the choices that you make before the eyes of God when no one's watching. Get around those kind of people too that tell you that that is where your life matters. Right? So when no one's looking and you have the choice to pour your life out or to self-indulge and you go, God, by your grace, would you help me to love this person in front of me though no one will ever give me one accolade for it and no one will ever know and no one's ever gonna blow a trumpet and put my name on a podcast or a billboard. Nobody's ever going to care. Your eyes see it and it matters to you. And so I wanna do it. Get around those kind of people too, because here's what's going to happen. That zeal 
has to be rightly ordered around what God defines as true and valuable and what it means to have passion for him. Because when the reality of our work does not meet our expectations, you will be tempted to be jaded. That's, that's where disillusionment comes, right? Disillusionment actually isn't a bad thing. It, it can be a gift. It's a window into pressing into the heart of God. But if we don't right-size our expectations in the midst of disillusionment, what happens is we become bitter and jaded and we start to become cynical. That's what you don't want. Don't draw back in those moments. This requires what we've talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, reorienting our focus to do the work before God's eyes and our purpose for doing the work to receive his his reward consistently. Letter E, so in order to remain focused or purposed over time, we need to continually look at our lives in partnership with God's spirit. We regularly need to ask him for his perspective in our lives in order that we would walk in a matter, manner that's according to his desires. That's the prayer that Paul prays for the Colossians in Colossians chapter one. He asks that God himself would come and fill them with the knowledge of his will. Right? What does God desire? What does God desire? That the spirit would come and open your heart and your mind to know what he desires with spiritual wisdom and understanding. Not just earthly wisdom, not just like this is what you should do or what you're supposed to do or what would be wise in the eyes of the world, God's wisdom. God's wisdom that only comes by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ask him for that. Why? Why does Paul ask for it? He says it right here in verse 10. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This is my, my desire. My desire for my life, for my family, for our spiritual family. It's like, God, would you fill us with the knowledge of your will so that we would walk in a manner worthy of you? Like, why have you put us where you've put us right now? What's the purpose that you have in front of us? Why have you given us the things that you've given us? Why have you put us right here in the heart of Kansas City in this cultural moment at this time? Why have you put us here? You ask those kind of questions and go, God, fill me with the knowledge of your will so that I can walk in a manner worthy of what you've called me to, that we would be fully pleasing to him in everything that we do. Okay, I'm gonna... Jump way ahead now. Look with me at Roman numeral four on page three. I'm going to say this quickly. The response of the people that we see in Haggai, I think this is really important. They do three things, or, or Haggai notes three things in these verses. The first thing that we see is that they obeyed. They obeyed. They stopped and they obeyed. God came and he said, hey, take a look at what you're doing. And they did it. They obeyed. They responded, right? They, were, they, they sought to respond with a spirit of obedience. Hearing God's word is more than simply giving mental assent to it, right? It's not just going, yeah, 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 I like that. That's great. 
Yes, that's what we're about. Obeying belief must be coupled with a spirit of obedience or it's not belief. Like faith looks like something. Faith has feet. Now, when I say a spirit of obedience, it's really important that you hear me me say this. Spirit of obedience does not mean perfection, right? Seeking to respond with a spirit of obedience does not mean that you've arrived at some state of perfection. It means that there are every area of your life that God is like putting his finger on. You are submitted with an open heart saying, I want to go in that way. And when you don't, this is what it looks like. God, I repent for that. Confessing that to him, confessing that to others. God, I repent for that. I return to you, receive freely your love and your grace. Right, like you don't have to clean yourself up or like perform for him or show him how sorry you are or any of that kind of stuff. You just receive freely the grace of God given in Christ Jesus. You rejoice in it. You stand firm in it. You rebuke shame and push it away. You don't live in a spirit of condemnation. You repent, you receive his mercy fresh, and you set yourself to obey him again. You might do that 10,000 times. That is still walking in a spirit of obedience. So when I say obeying or responding with a spirit of obedience, hear that, please. Do not hear, I'm now perfect or sinless, or I never stumble or get off track. That's number one, they obeyed. Number two, he says that they feared the Lord. So this is closely tied with the desire to obey. Hear the fear of the Lord, I don't believe is the, there's, there's a couple kinds of the fear of the Lord that we see in the scripture. Sometimes you experience the experience of the fear of the Lord, right? Like there's this trembling or this awe or reverence that is, that it moves the, uh, our hearts to be aware of God's greatness and his holiness and our sinfulness and our need, right? We, we feel that at times. The fear of the Lord is also a belief that our actions, our choices, our lives matter to God, that we'll stand in his presence one day, that we will live before him and that we'll stand before him and give an account for what we've done. That's the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord produces wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord starts us down the path of what does God desire? That's wisdom. Okay, look at letter D. Closely tied to all these actions, we see that the Lord stirred the people to work. As throughout all the scripture, it is the Lord who is at work, bringing forth both the will to work and the strength to work. I want you to see this. The evidence that God is stirring them is that they responded. This is, this is maybe backwards to how you might think about things. I think a lot of us misunderstand the relationship between God's activity in our lives and what feels like our choices or our actions, right? We misunderstand what it means for God to stir, up, stir them up. Some of us believe that God stirring us up means 
that he like overpowers us or something, right? Like I'm gonna all of a sudden have this emotional experience to where I'm so compelled I can't do anything else. Then I'll know that God's stirring me. That's not what the scriptures tell us at all, ever. Rather, the scripture shows us that we respond. That's our call, right? When God's word comes to us, we are called to respond. And when we respond, we know that it's God stirring us up. This is Philippians 2, uh, 13, or 12 and 13. Paul says, hey, believers, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which means order your life according to what God says is wise and good. Take your time and energy and think on this. Work it out with reverent fear to God and trembling before him that this really matters. This isn't a game. This matters for eternity. The weight of that, let it sit on us. Paul's going, hey, hey, this is not something to be trifled with. Work out your salvation. And as you do it, as your heart goes, God, I want to be pleasing to you. I want to live in a conformity to you. I want you to know something. God is working in you right there. That's God working in you. Your desire to obey him, your desire to order all of your stuff up under him, all of your life, all of your relationships, all of your finances, all of your energy, that desire, if you're sitting there going, yes, I wanna be more conformed to God. I wanna be more conformed to his purposes, his ways, his plans. That's the spirit of God at work in you. Don't despise the smallness of it. Don't despise the fact that it doesn't feel like overly emotional. Rejoice in the fact that he is working in you and take steps toward it. And when you stumble, stop and go, God, I don't wanna, I don't wanna run in that way. I don't wanna be haphazard about that. I repent for that. I'm gonna turn myself back to you. I'm gonna receive your grace fully, freely, wholly in Christ Jesus and help me when I come up to that thing again to press through it. Know that that's God at work in you. That is the spirit of God working in you in normal ways. Don't despise that and don't wait for this like, I just feel like I'm in a frenzy. And then it's gonna be super easy to like step forward here. If you're sitting in the room and you're going, God, where are my loves disordered? The spirit is stirring you. If you're saying, I want more of my time ordered around the things that God loves, the spirit is stirring you. If you're saying, God, that thing is getting in the way and it has hold on me? God, would you help me? The spirit is stirring you. I just wanna name that for you, right? Like it's easy to move past those realities. Okay, I'm gonna be done. We're gonna come to a close there. Amen and amen. Um, I was gonna do a lot of instruction this morning, but... The Lord had other things for us. Hey, would you all stand with me as the team comes back up?
a similar way to last week, let's just, uh, let's just settle in for a second and ask the Lord to move in our midst. Just present ourselves to him as his people. God, this morning I ask that you would come and fill us with the knowledge of your will. God, I ask for all of my brothers and sisters in this room. God, as we begin a new year together, I ask that you would come and help us. Would you help us? Would you speak to us? God, what are the things that you desire for us? Where are the places where we have in our discouragement or our finding the, the, the things in front of us difficult? Where have we drawn back? God, would you come and whisper? Whisper to every one of our hearts this morning what you desire, what you long for. God, we love you. We want, we want to be wholly yours, fully pleasing to you in everything. Would you come and fill us with spiritual wisdom? and spiritual understanding. Direct our hearts, God. this morning as we, as we respond uh, by coming to the table and receiving communion this morning. I'm going to walk us into that, but I want to invite us this morning to, um, to not feel like we're in a hurry, to not feel like we got to just move on to the next thing. Um, if there's places where the Lord's like working in your soul, where he's whispering to your heart or uh, inviting you into a response. Um, I want to. I want to really press like the um, the importance of opening that up with someone else. Like, come and receive prayer. We've got ministers in the room that would love to pray with you, pray for you. Turn to somebody next to you, ask them to like pray over you. Uh, we we have the privilege together. One of, the, one of the things that is the glorious privileges and why we gather together um, as the people of God is God dispenses gifts through his body for his body, right? So, so he, he, by his spirit, empowers his saints to build up and strengthen 
and um, edify his, his bride. And we want to we wanna make room for that, right? We don't, we don't want to just go through the motions, right? Like we need, to be, we, we need to be built up. We need to be edified. We need to be strengthened and bolstered in our faith, right? Patience is spirit wrought. And we need, we need God to do that in us. And so even if there's places where you want somebody to stand with you and ask something for, uh, on your behalf from the Lord, uh, we would love to do that. We always respond that way. We respond in song. And we respond by coming and celebrating uh, the Lord's Supper together. Uh, this meal is open for any and all who call upon the name of Jesus and look to him and to him alone for salvation. We don't look to our own strength, our own ability, our own follow through, our own discipline. We don't look to any of that. All of our righteousness is even just like filthy rags before God. We need him to provide for us all that we cannot be for ourselves. And he did that in and through Christ Jesus. And so as we come to the table, we receive the broken body and the shed blood of our savior, declaring that through him and him alone, we have salvation and, and acceptance before God. If you believe that you're a Christian and you're welcome to come and take this meal with us, the way we do that at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up front in the middle, up in both sides of the balcony. And we have a gluten-free station down here to my right, to your left. Servers, you're welcome to come on forward now. Uh, if, you're in the, if you're in the room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, we wanna ask that you not come take the meal with us. Don't feel pressure to come and like perform or participate in, 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 a, in a ritual or something like this. This meal is a signifier. It, it demonstrates and points to a reality that we put our faith in. Uh, the meal doesn't afford you anything before God. And so uh, feel free to stay in your seat and, and be where you are. We're really glad you're here with us this morning, but don't come and take this meal. Uh, for those of you who are receiving, um, I'll pray for us one more time and then we can come when you're ready. And again, do feel free to come and receive prayer uh, from, from those who are around the sanctuary this morning. God, we love you. We ask that you would uh, continue to work in our midst. Would you continue to... Um, speak to us? Would you protect us and guide us? Would you, um, would you be pleased this morning to stir the affections of our hearts that we would love you more, that we would desire you more, that our lives would be wholly pleasing to you? God, we love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.